Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, I'm going to tell you some stories that I have been collecting. You can read them at worldbeyondwar.org slash war stories. Here's the first one, called Have Some Blankets and Die. Jeffrey Amherst commanding general of British forces in North America and later a lord, and a man for whom Amherst, Massachusetts is named, wrote this in a letter to a subordinate. Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. Beyond smallpox, Amherst proposed, quote, to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. He asked that, quote, measures be taken as would bring about the total extirpation of those Indian nations. He hoped to, quote, put a most effectual stop to their very being. His plans were acted upon using infected blankets and handkerchiefs. Total extirpation was not achieved. Hundreds of years later, it remains common for members of the U.S. military to describe invaded lands as, quote, Indian country. In 2017, President Donald Trump proposed total destruction, and Senator John McCain proposed extermination for North Korea. This one is called, Nobody Had Yet Thought of a Better Way Except those who had. From 1683 to 1755, Pennsylvania's European settlers had no major wars with the native nations, in stark contrast with other British colonies. Pennsylvania had slavery, it had capital and other horrific punishments, and it had individual violence, but it chose not to use war, not to take land without what was supposed to be just compensation, and not to push alcohol on the native people in the way that opium was later pushed on China and guns and planes are now pushed on nasty despots. In 1710, the Tuscaroras from North Carolina sent messengers to Pennsylvania asking for permission to settle there. All the money that would have been used for militias, forts, and armaments in Pennsylvania was available, for better or worse, to build Philadelphia, remember what its name means, and to develop the colony. The colony had 4,000 people within three years, and by 1776, Philadelphia surpassed Boston and New York in size. So while the superpowers of the day were battling for control of the continent, one group of people rejected the idea that war is necessary and prospered more rapidly than any of their neighbors who insisted it was. Thank you to John Rohr for this story. Lighting a match. It was March 23, 1775, and a wealthy white man who owned many people as slaves was giving a speech in a church in Richmond, Virginia. What he said was not recorded, but we know that he spoke poorly of rule by England. An account just the next week by a man who had attended the speech tells us that the speaker called King George III, quote, a tyrant, a fool, a puppet, and a tool. This order may have merely hinted at revolution as on other occasions, or he may have openly advocated it. He also probably spoke on this day, as he did on others before and after, of the need to militarily suppress slave revolts and to resist any British efforts to free people from slavery, as well as of the need to attack Native Americans to the West, where this man was making a fortune on land speculation. Forty-two years later, a supposed text of the speech was published, having been concocted from decades-old memories solicited second-hand 
plus sheer invention. The original speaker had long since died, but now we learned that he had spoken against a metaphorical enslavement to England, and possibly even acted out liberating himself from invisible bondage. Words put into his mouth included these, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. There is no record of Patrick Henry subsequently risking death. He saw no combat action. He did, however, campaign against ratification of the U.S. Constitution. His rallying cry, popularizing a war, theretofore desired mostly by elites, is sufficient, however, to rank him as a heroic founding father, of a sort that people in Canada and Australia must deeply regret lacking. Thank you to Ray Raphael for this story. This one is called... Was that the Rubicon? The native people of his country called him Conotocarius, meaning town destroyer. He was the wealthiest man on his continent, and he ruled fiercely over his fighters. Those who misbehaved were often given 100 lashes with a whip. Conotocarius tried to increase the punishment to 500 lashes. He led a desperate insurgency against the legitimate government, and a turning point came with the crossing of a river. It was Christmas night when he sneaked his fighters across a wide river and marched them on a sleepy camp of government mercenaries. The insurgents, or what the U.S. State Department would today call terrorists, killed 22, wounded 83, and took about 900 prisoners, as well as seizing their supplies. The attackers' own losses were five wounded and zero dead in the battle, though two died from exposure to the cold during the march. Among the group of freedom fighters, or terrorists, choose your term, but apply it also to resistors in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, Niger, Philippines, etc., were James Madison, James Monroe, John Marshall, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, and their leader, whose other name was George Washington. 235 years later, a giant triumphalist phallic monument to Washington cracked in an earthquake, possibly caused by fracking. While the regime established in that Delaware River crossing war long ago, waged wars in several different places around the globe, maintaining a troop presence in 175 countries. This one is called Compensated Emancipation. At the end of the 1700s, the world was dominated by slavery. Slavery was the norm. The vast majority of people on earth were in slavery or serfdom. Before the end of the 1800s, slavery had been outlawed almost everywhere and drastically reduced in its actual presence. Most parts of the world that ended or took steps to virtually end slavery and the slave trade did so without civil wars driven forward by a non-violent abolitionist movement and some violent slave revolts. The United States dramatically reduced slavery at the cost of 750,000 dead, cities burned, militarism glorified, and seemingly eternal resentment fostered. To suggest that another course was possible is typically met with the facts of how dramatically differently people would have had to think and behave. In other words, an underestimation of the term possible. Incredibly difficult though it was to enact, there was someone who had an idea. From 1856 to 1860, Elihu Burritt, 
promoted a plan to prevent civil war through compensated emancipation or the purchase and liberation of enslaved people by the government, an example that the English had set in the West Indies, and an approach that would be used in Washington, D.C., but not the rest of the United States, in 1862. Burritt traveled constantly all over the country speaking. He organized a mass convention that was held in Cleveland. He lined up prominent supporters. He edited newsletters. On June 20, 2013, The Atlantic published an article called no, Lincoln could not have bought the slaves. Why not? Well, the slave owners didn't want to sell. That's perfectly true. They didn't. Not at all. But the Atlantic focuses on another argument, namely that it would have been too expensive, costing as much as $3 billion in 1860s money. Yet if you read closely, it's easy to miss it. The author admits that the war cost over twice that much. The cost of freeing people was simply unaffordable, yet the cost over twice as much of killing people goes by almost unnoticed, as if it were a current Pentagon budget. The Brooks Brothers Aryan A very popular and famous promoter of wars for the Aryan race had his war costume designed especially for him by Brooks Brothers. In his worldview, the Aryans had come from the Middle East to Germany and from there to England in the form of the Anglo-Saxons, who had moved westward across North America and on to the Pacific, from which they would come full circle to the eventual, and still longed for, conquering of what is now called Iran. In a 1910 lecture at Oxford, this well-dressed Aryan argued in favor of ethnic conquest claiming that allowing members of conquered peoples to live was slowing the progress of the race. His name was Teddy Roosevelt. The Yankees of the Far East In 1614, Japan had cut itself off from the West, resulting in centuries of relative peace and prosperity and the blossoming of Japanese art and culture. In 1853, the U.S. Navy had forced Japan open to U.S. merchants, missionaries, and militarism. The Japanese studied the Americans' racism and adopted a strategy to deal with it. They sought to westernize themselves and present themselves as a separate race superior to the rest of the Asians. They became honorary Aryans. Lacking a single god or a god of conquest, they invented a divine emperor, borrowing heavily from Christian tradition. They dressed and dined like Americans and sent their students to study in the United States. The Japanese were often referred to in the United States as the Yankees of the Far East. In 1872, the U.S. military began training the Japanese in how to conquer other nations with an eye on Taiwan. Charles Legendre proposed a Monroe Doctrine for Asia. That is, a Japanese policy of dominating Asia in the way that the United States dominated its hemisphere. Japan established a Bureau of Savage Affairs and invented new words like Koroni, colony. Talk in Japan began to focus on the responsibility of the Japanese to civilize the savages. In 1873, Japan invaded Taiwan with U.S. military advisors, and Korea was next. It's all Korea's fault. Korea and Japan had known nothing but peace for centuries. When the Japanese arrived in U.S. ships, wearing U.S. clothing, talking about their divine emperor, and proposing a treaty of friendship, the Koreans thought the Japanese had lost their minds and told them to get lost, knowing that China was there at Korea's back. 
But the Japanese talked China into allowing Korea to sign the treaty without explaining to either the Chinese or Koreans what the treaty meant in its English translation. In 1894, Japan declared war on China, a war in which U.S. weapons carried the day. China gave up Taiwan and the Laodong Peninsula, paid a large indemnity, declared Korea independent, and gave Japan the same commercial rights in China that the U.S. and European nations had. Japan was triumphant, until China persuaded Russia, France, and Germany to oppose Japanese ownership of Laodong. Japan gave it up, and Russia grabbed it. Japan felt betrayed by white Christians. In 1904, President Teddy Roosevelt was pleased with a Japanese surprise attack on Russian ships. As the Japanese again waged war on Asia as honorary Aryans, Roosevelt secretly and unconstitutionally cut deals with them, approving a Monroe Doctrine for Japan in Asia and handing Japan Korea as a koroni. Yet, Roosevelt backed Russia's refusal to pay Japan a dime, and he refused to make his Monroe Doctrine for Japan public. Japan began to deeply resent its mentor. Thank you to James Bradley for this story. To hell with Spain. Remember the Maine and to hell with Spain. That was the cry of the yellow journalists of 1898 who blamed an explosion and sinking of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor on the Spanish. Spain proposed that the dispute over what caused the explosion in or near the ship be sent to a third party for arbitration. Spain committed to abiding by any decision and to making any amends required. To hell with that. The U.S. government preferred to go to war, a war on Cuba, the Philippines, and various Pacific islands. Today, the USS Maine is as widely dispersed as a medieval saint, with one mast on display as a monument in Arlington, Virginia, and another at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, plus anchors from the ship displayed in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, two of them, and Maine, as well as guns, propellers, other parts, and plaques made from melting the ship down, now on display in at least 84 other locations around the United States. It is not known whether touching these relics aids one in believing the marketing for the most recent wars. Freeing the Philippines More Filipinos died in the first day of fighting off their U.S. benefactors than Americans would die storming the beaches at Normandy. In the days that followed, many Filipinos were discovered to be in need of waterboarding. U.S. troops in the Philippines sang a pleasant little song about providing the water torture to the Filipinos. Here's a verse. Oh, pump it in him till he swells like a toy balloon. The fool pretends that liberty is not a precious boon, but we'll contrive to make him see the beauty of it soon, shouting the battle cry of freedom. How could that fail to work? Sunken ships loosen lips. Germany sank the Lusitania, a horrible act of mass murder. The Lusitania had been loaded up with weapons and troops for the British. Another horrible act of mass murder. But most damaging were the lies told about it all. Germany had published warnings in New York newspapers and newspapers around the United States. These warnings had been printed right next to ads for sailing on the Lusitania and had been signed by the German embassy. Newspapers had written articles about the warnings. The Cunard Company had been asked about the warnings. The former captain of the Lusitania had already quit, reportedly due to the stress of sailing through what Germany had publicly declared a war zone. 
Meanwhile, Winston Churchill is quoted as having said, It is most important to attract neutral shipping to our shores in the hope especially of embroiling the United States with Germany. It was under his command that the usual British military protection was not provided to the Lusitania, despite Cunard having stated that it was counting on that protection. U.S. Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan resigned over the U.S. failure to remain neutral. That the Lusitania was carrying weapons and troops to aid the British in the war against Germany was asserted by Germany and by other observers, and was true. Yet the U.S. government said then, and U.S. textbooks say now, that the innocent Lusitania was attacked without warning, an action alleged to justify entering a war. Wait just a minute. Exactly at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, people across Europe suddenly stopped shooting guns at each other. Up until that moment, they were killing and taking bullets, falling and screaming, moaning and dying. Then they stopped, on schedule. It wasn't that they'd gotten tired or come to their senses. Both before and after 11 o'clock, they were simply following orders. The armistice agreement that ended World War I had set 11 o'clock as quitting time. Henry Nicholas John Gunther had been born in Baltimore, Maryland, to parents who had immigrated from Germany. In September 1917, he had been drafted to help kill Germans. When he'd written home from Europe to describe how horrible the war was and to encourage others to avoid being drafted, he'd been demoted and his letter censored. He had told his buddies he would prove himself. At 5 a.m. on 11-11-1918, the armistice was signed. As the deadline of 11 a.m. approached, Henry got up against orders and bravely charged with his bayonet toward two German machine guns. The Germans were aware of the armistice and tried to wave him off. He kept approaching and shooting. When he got close, a short burst of machine gun fire ended his life at 10.59 a.m. Henry was the last of the 11,000 men to be killed or wounded between the signing of the armistice and its taking effect. Henry Gunther was given his rank back, but not his life. Armistice Day each year, for a lot of years, there was a remembrance on November 11th. The U.S. Congress called Armistice Day a holiday to, quote, perpetuate peace through goodwill and mutual understanding between nations, a day dedicated to the cause of world peace. When church bells rang their bells at 11 o'clock, that was what they meant. It was a holiday for peace, and it lasted as long as the idea of peace did. Outlawing War a lawyer in Chicago named Salmon Levinson had an idea. If you could ban dueling, why couldn't you ban war? He built a popular movement that did just that. Until 1928, war was legal. It's outlawing by means of all the wealthiest nations on earth signing and ratifying the Kellogg-Briand Pact was the biggest news story of 1928. Wars were prevented. After World War II, the losers were prosecuted for the new crime. Wealthy nations never went to war with each other again. Conquest and colonialism virtually ceased. Territorial gains through war were restored to 1928 borders. The number of nations on earth quickly doubled as it became relatively safe to exist as a small country. But the outlawing of war was never accompanied by disarming of weapons. In fact, the arming and funding of future enemies became a growing industry from that day to this. 
The law was twisted at Nuremberg and Tokyo and in the United Nations Charter into a ban only on aggressive and non-UN authorized wars. The five biggest weapons dealers and war makers were given veto power in the Security Council. Endless rules were invented for proper wars. The idea that war was a crime was intentionally forgotten. If anyone mentions it nowadays, the response is that war exists and is therefore not a crime. A response that seems to work only in this instance and not for any other crimes, all of which exist or there would be no point in criminalizing them. The Great Depression or Preparation by Mule In the 1930s, the U.S. military expanded into the Pacific. In March 1935, President Franklin Roosevelt bestowed Wake Island on the U.S. Navy and gave Pan Am Airways a permit to build runways on Wake Island, Midway Island, and Guam. Japanese military commanders announced that they were disturbed and viewed these runways as a threat. So did peace activists in the United States. By the next month, Roosevelt had planned war games and maneuvers near the Aleutian Islands and Midway Island. By the following month, peace activists were marching in New York advocating friendship with Japan. Norman Thomas wrote in 1935, quote, The man from Mars who saw how men suffered in the last war and how frantically they are preparing for the next war, which they know will be worse, would come to the conclusion that he was looking at the denizens of a lunatic asylum. The U.S. believed a Japanese attack on Hawaii would begin with conquering the island of Nihau, from which flights would take off to assault the other islands. U.S. Army Air Corps Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Brandt approached the Robinson family, which owned Nihau and still does. He asked them to plow furrows across the island in a grid to render it useless for airplanes. Between 1933 and 1937, three Nihau men cut the furrows with plows pulled by mules or draft horses. The U.S. Navy spent the next few years working up plans for war with Japan. The March 8, 1939 version of which described, quote, an offensive war of long duration. As it turned out, the Japanese had no plans to use Nihau, but when a Japanese plane that had just been part of the attack on Pearl Harbor had to make an emergency landing, it landed on Nihau, despite all the efforts of the mules and horses. Peace versus Holocaust Jesse Wallace Hewen, founder of the War Resisters League, was very concerned in 1942 by stories of Nazi plans, no longer focused on expelling Jews but turning toward plans to murder them. Hewen believed that such a development appeared, quote, natural from their pathological point of view, and that it might really be acted upon if World War II continued. Quote, it seems that the only way to save thousands and perhaps millions of European Jews from destruction, she wrote, would be for our government to broadcast the promise of an armistice on condition that the European minorities are not molested any further. It would be very terrible if six months from now we should find that this threat has literally come to pass without our making even a gesture to prevent it. End quote. When her predictions were fulfilled only too well by 1943, she wrote to the U.S. State Department and the New York Times, quote, Two million Jews have already died, and two million more will be killed by the end of the war. She warned that military successes against Germany would just result in further scapegoating of Jews. Quote, Victory will not save them, for dead men cannot be liberated, she wrote. 
Thank you to Lawrence Whitner for this story. Let's try to stay focused. Quote, Anthony Eden, Britain's foreign secretary, who'd been tasked by Churchill with handling queries about refugees, dealt coldly with one of many important delegations, saying that any diplomatic effort to obtain the release of the Jews from Hitler was fantastically impossible. On a trip to the United States, Eden candidly told Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, that the real difficulty with asking Hitler for the Jews was that Quote, Hitler might well take us up on any such offer, and there simply are not enough ships and means of transportation in the world to handle them. Churchill agreed. Quote, Even were we to obtain permission to withdraw all the Jews, he wrote in reply to one pleading letter, transport alone presents a problem which will be difficult of solution. Not enough shipping and transport. Two years earlier, the British had evacuated nearly 340,000 men from the beaches of Dunkirk in just nine days. The U.S. Air Force had many thousands of new planes. During even a brief armistice, the Allies could have airlifted and transported refugees in very large numbers out of the German sphere. End quote. Thank you to and quoted from Nicholson Baker. Anne Frank's Visa Application a ship of Jewish refugees from Germany was chased away from Miami by the Coast Guard. The U.S. and other nations refused to accept most Jewish refugees, and the majority of the U.S. public supported that position. The U.S. engaged in no diplomatic or military effort to save the victims of the Nazi concentration camps. Anne Frank's family was denied U.S. visas. Kyoto's Survival U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson kept Kyoto off the list of targets for nuclear bombs. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not more military or less civilian than Kyoto was, and they were considered less ideal locations to demonstrate the new bombs. But Kyoto had cultural significance, and it appears that among those who appreciated Kyoto's beauty was Henry Stimson, who had visited Kyoto. As far as we know, he had never been to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, which was too bad for them. Why are there two Koreas? Following World War II, two American colonels after midnight on August 11, 1945, pulled out a National Geographic map and picked a place as far north as they thought they could get away with. They chose the 38th parallel of latitude. They drew a line. They thereby doubled the number of Koreas in the world. The North stopped receiving food from the South, and the South stopped receiving electricity from the North. The North got a leader chosen by the Soviet Union, and the South got one chosen by and imported from Washington, D.C. What could go wrong? Can you wash a brain? During and after the Korean War of 1950-53, to 53, the United States had a problem for which the solution was brainwashing. Not actual brainwashing, but the creation and popularization of the concept of brainwashing. It became very useful to spread about the idea that the Chinese were capable of things that the CIA only dreamed of and desperately searched for, such as the creation of Manchurian candidates, human beings programmed like machines. In particular, it became necessary to convince people that the Chinese could erase someone's mind and replace it with a bunch of made-up stories that would be sincerely believed. This feat, which is not actually possible in the real world, was called brainwashing. But why was it needed? 
Well, U.S. troops who had been held as prisoners during the war had said some pretty terrible things about the crimes they had been engaged in, and now they were free and back home and refusing to recant their testimony. During the Korean War, the United States bombed virtually all of North Korea and a good bit of the South, killing millions of people. It dropped massive quantities of napalm. It bombed dams, bridges, villages, houses. This was all-out mass slaughter. But there was something the U.S. government didn't want known, something deemed unethical in this genocidal madness. We now know that the United States dropped on China and North Korea insects and feathers carrying anthrax, cholera, encephalitis, and bubonic plague. This was supposed to be a secret at the time, and the Chinese response of mass vaccinations and insect eradication probably contributed to the project's general failure. Hundreds were killed, but not millions. But members of the U.S. military, taken prisoner by the Chinese, confessed to what they had been a part of, and confessed publicly when they got back to the United States. It was quickly discovered, to everyone's great relief, that these poor souls were victims of brainwashing. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.